Application security is best designed into a system from the start. Anthony Shaw is doing something about it by creating an editor plugin that actually helps you write more secure application code while you're coding. So cool. On today's testing code, Anthony and I discuss his security plugin, but also application security in general, as well as other security components that you need to consider. Security is something every team needs to think about, whether you're a single person team, a small startup, or a large corporation. Anthony and I also discuss where to start if it's just the few of you, or even just one of you. Thank you, OxyLabs, for sponsoring this episode. OxyLabs, a top provider of innovative services, including real-time crawler, web scraper, and residential and data center proxies. Trusted by more than 500 companies. Find out what they can do for you at oxylabs.io slash testingcode. Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development, software testing, and Python. Welcome to Testing Code. I'm really excited to have Anthony Shaw back, or Anthony Shaw, sorry. Anyway, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Brian. It's good to be back on the show. Yeah, so you've been up to a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and one of the things you're up to is this... Um, this plugin for PyCharm with uh, with security. So why is your head in security right now? Uh, it has been for a while. I've been interested in sort of like application developer security for, for ages. Um, and I have sort of written about it and also wanted to write a PyCharm plugin because pretty much any application that has a plugin capability, it's too tempting not to just sit down and try and write a plugin for it. <laughs> okay. Um, sure. So what are we talking about when we're talking about security? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess on this particular topic, wanted to focus on application security in particular. Because um, if you if you look at security, cybersecurity in general, or like information security, then there's a whole bunch of stuff you could talk about, like data security, environment security. Um, but the, the application is the bit that, as a developer, you're responsible for and you have the biggest impact on. Um, I'm quite passionate about it because I've seen so many insecurely developed applications over the years. Or um, one of my first jobs was as a, uh, a support engineer uh, in a data center and being called out in the middle of the night time and time again because people's servers had been hacked <laughs> um, because of poorly written applications. Um, so probably since then, I think I've been kind of cared about it and there's just so there's such a lack of awareness, I think, of the easy ways to hack into applications, and people make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, so the goal with the plugin was to basically write something that would sit in PyCharm and almost like give you hints and stuff as you're writing the code, saying, okay, actually, what you're doing is a bit insecure. Here's a better way of doing it, and it will highlight the code and show you where um, you've potentially introduced a vulnerability. Uh, and then it will suggest a quick fix. So if you're used to PyCharm, you know, you can hit the quick fix um, key, which I don't know what it is on Windows, but it's command and enter in uh, in on Mac. Um, and it will just replace the code with whatever it suggests as being a more secure alternative. Okay, so that's um, and then a couple of questions here. 
by application you mean a web application right yeah so that's an interesting one i think when people think about application security they think okay well if yeah fine if i've got something that's on the internet then um you know i should care about security but my app is i don't know it's um shipped to people's desktops or it's you know it runs um in like a corporate environment somewhere and it's behind a firewall like why do i need to bother about security but actually um all this stuff really can impact any type of application not just internet facing applications i think web apps definitely get um the most amount of attacks um and hammering but if you're an attacker and you want to basically get into a network you can use application vulnerabilities to like sidestep security basically so um like a common technique is to go in via one entry point and find an application that has a vulnerability and then almost like use that as a stepping stone into something else um so it's not just the web apps it's, it's pretty much everything you have to care about before we were talking i was even thinking well um i don't have to care about it for a static site but there's no running code, so there's no vulnerabilities. Um, but you pointed out that there's JavaScript. and But we have to care about that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, if I was to tell you that there's a way of running arbitrary code on on your users' machines and you have no control over it, you'd probably be terrified. But you've, you've pretty much got that in your application at the moment. Um, with script tags at the top, you're you know, importing libraries from third-party places. You probably haven't vetted those. Um, and it sounds it sounds paranoid, but this stuff happens all the time. We were just talking about um, the British Airways um, hack, um, which was basically related to JavaScript. It wasn't even a, a back-end flaw. It was the fact that they were using a JavaScript library that had been compromised and had a keylogger in it. Um, and they had that on their payment site. And it was all related to adverts. So they had adverts on the site, um, and basically one of the adverts had was importing some JavaScript libraries that were uh, were compromised and were just capturing people's credit card information off the payment page. Okay, yeah, see, this is terrifying. So that's what, one of the reasons why I'm glad we're talking about this is because to try to make it a little less terrifying, my first reaction is, well, I just don't want to do anything related to the web anymore. But that's not a, pro- a reasonable solution. There's a lot of people that are just small businesses or something or even just small teams that don't have a bunch of money to throw at this or extra people. So how do we take this in small steps to do the right thing? I mean, the, so if I run your plugin on PyCharm, uh, that's a, I like the idea of like trying to catch things as people are writing. Does it also scan the rest of it as well? Um, or is that, is it related to, do we have to scan existing code before, before the stuff that's there already? Yeah, so what it'll do is you can, well, it basically pops up in the editor. So as you're writing, it will make suggestions, just like any other annotation in PyCharm. Um, Also, when you open the project, it will look at the packages that you're using, and it will see if any of those packages have got known security flaws. Um, So it uses something called SafetyDB, which is um, the same database that PyUp uses, uh, if anyone's ever used PyUp. It's uh, it's like a GitHub integration that looks at your packages on your GitHub application, uh, your GitHub repositories. So basically, what it will do is it will look at all your package dependencies and say, oh, are you using this particular version of Django? Actually, that version has got these three security issues. So when you open the project in PyCharm, it will give you a warning 
um, to go and update the packages. So that that's assuming that the security issues are known, which in a lot of cases for big applications they are. People have found the holes already and reported them. Um, and then you can scan the whole project as well if you want. Okay, so even if I have a, I'm not really working on my app, but it's sitting on top of, of a bunch of other projects, I do need to pay attention to this on a regular basis to make sure that there aren't vulnerabilities in the packages I'm using. Mm. You were kind enough, since I'm a newbie at test at uh, security stuff, kind enough to write some notes down, and I appreciate that. But one of the things is the, that you brought up is whose job is it? I think the answer is going to be it's everybody's, but there's got to be some separation of responsibilities there, right? Yeah, the, I mean... So if I gave you a if I gave you a scenario, not in security, just in normal testing, let's say somebody had written you'd, you'd developed an application that takes inputs and it puts those inputs in a database, and then another part of the application loads the data from a database and represents it in a view or something like that's a really common pattern in applications. Let's say if you were doing QA, you discovered that in the input you could make it inject or put null values into the database, and the database was configured to allow null values in this particular column, and then the other part of the application that reads the null values crashes because it's not expecting a null value. Like, would you ship that application? No. No, of course not. And whose job is it to find that issue? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's yours. Um, You don't work for me, but it's still yours. Yeah. Um, So I, I think the security aspect is is basically the same it's just thinking differently so if you're thinking about it from a like a normal software like quality testing you think about okay here's some inputs what kind of inputs is it expecting can i give it different inputs like can i try and break the application that way and security testing is is basically similar but you're thinking maliciously so you're if you can put your evil hat on for a minute and think okay how can i maliciously do this like just because the user shouldn't do that doesn't mean they won't um and in some cases people will try and go out of their way to to basically bypass bypass things so i think whose job is the testing is definitely um the developer's responsibility to think about uh, and have knowledge about application security i think it's the the testing team, if there is a testing team, or whether that responsibility is integrated, I think it's the is part of testing to think about security uh, and to also look at and test for security scenarios. Um, and I think it's also management's job to make sure that enough time has been has been factored into um, roadmaps or planning or whatever to allow for security testing. And don't think of it as a as a luxury. Um, like a, another another common one that people um, another common trap that people fall into, for example, is um, on web web applications. There's something called uh, like parameter manipulation, which sounds technical, but um, when you understand it as a developer, it makes you I guess approach things differently. So if you had a a web application um, that was like a shop, for example, and a user had logged in. And they could click on their or like my my orders or something, and it would look in the database to see what orders you'd made in the past. And you could click on one of those orders and it would take you to the order page. So that's a fairly simple, common thing that people would write. So when you click on the order, it passes the ID to a view and says, okay, this is your order when you ordered five books or whatever. Um 
the post the step of going from the orders page to the order view you're passing an order id or a unique identifier or something okay are you are you validating on the last view that that order id still belongs to the same user oh wow um, because this is this is probably one of the most common mistakes uh, in web applications is to is to basically present a series of data to a user and then to allow them to then go to another page like via AJAX or via a form post or something. Um, but what you can do is is just swap that ID out for something else. Like, what if I change the ID? Do I get somebody else's orders? Like, do I get? Um, is there ways that I can use that to? like get information about other people, change my permissions. Like this is a pretty common uh, mistake people make. Yeah. And especially, I mean, I don't know if it happens anymore, but it used to be people would even have like their user ID and the URL that you'd end up following down. (laughs) Yeah. That's a pretty bad one. I think if people think that you're using post, um, then it's secure, but it's not, it's just the same. You can still swap post values. Oh really? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to do. <laughs> Thank you to Oxylabs for sponsoring this episode. Oxylabs is a top provider of innovative web data gathering services, such as real-time crawler, web scraper, and residential and data center proxies. Oxylabs is now introducing their next-generation residential proxies, which are a significantly improved data gathering solution. They provide a stable and fast proxy pool with more than 30 million global IP addresses. And they are resource efficient, with the proxy management, user agents, and IP re- rotation all done on the Oxylab side. Oxylabs has a deep understanding and knowledge of how to acquire web data, and they provide a dedicated account manager for every client. Already trusted by more than 500 companies, visit oxylabs.io slash testingcode to find out more about their services and to apply for a free trial of their next-generation residential proxies. That's oxylabs.io slash testencode. Does it make sense to um, to bring on somebody that really has the, the, like the, the knowledge on how to break things, um, like the evil hacker hat? Um, is it make sense to bring somebody that, like that onto a team and if so, when? At what level of team do you need that? Hmm. I mean, this is a, is a hard question. Um, there's definitely a perception that these uh, these kind of security testers are these. They have like huge amounts of domain knowledge, which they can in some you know in some cases, um, and they know all the secret ways to hack into the applications. Um, the ones I've worked with, definitely some of them have that, and they've taught me loads about um web applications in particular um whether you should hire one i mean as a dedicated role it is going to depend on your budget um i'd say at a minimum you need to have a set of standards as a team and checks and things that you would look for so to make sure that everyone on the team is aware at least of security and has been trained on application security um and then also you can sit down as a team and say, okay, what would our coding standards be? What kind of things would we make sure that we validate? Because those are going to be specific to whatever it is you're building. Like, fine, if you're building a web application that's an online store, then you obviously need to think about how you handle credit card data, how you handle passwords, how you handle like user authentication, stuff like that. 
Um, but if you're building like an application like you do, Brian, um, or you're testing an application like you do, uh, which is more sort of to do with like radio signals and I can't remember exactly what it does, but, um, you know, you still need to think about that stuff because, um, you know, people would, if people wanted to hack into it, they would do it for different purposes. Like if your equipment has been used for, I don't know, like military applications or it's being used in like some big industrial scenarios, could somebody attack it? Um, and if they could, what mechanisms would they use? Like, are there any inputs into it? Is there any way of sending signals to it? So I think as a team, you've got to sit down and discuss, okay, like what would our attack surface look like? Like, So how could people get stuff into the system? And how can we basically update our like patterns and practices as a team to think about security and think about sanitizing input and think about all the other different approaches that we need to take. So I think first step would be if you work either as a single developer, then you need to do this yourself. Um, if you work in a very small team, then I think as a team to do this, um, and there's heaps of training you can do online for free, you don't need to spend any money. Um, and then actually just sit down and think about it and start to write a, a basically a list of like best practices for your team. Um, and, and then if you're big enough, then you can absolutely hire somebody to, to do this. Um, but if you do hire a, a full-time person, I'd say also be careful because, um, there, there's people who can, can write a lot of, uh, write a lot of theory, uh, and things like that. But if you actually need someone who's going to sit and try and hack the application all day, then make sure you're hiring for that particular, um, set. Now there's, I'm, I imagine there's a lot of low hanging fruit of common problems with uh, lots of applications. So I, I'm just, is there applications off the shelf things that you can either, either open source projects or free stuff or, or free stuff or even paid stuff that, that can try to attack um, a, like a test, a test server or something um, to see if you've got any security problems? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of that, most of it's commercial. Um, so there's there's basically two different types of um, code. If you're looking at code analysis in particular, and uh, there's basically two different categories: there's static um, code analysis and dynamic code analysis, just as you would have with code analysis tools for complexity or um, any other um, thing like performance, for example. Yeah. Um, static code analysis tools range from the simple free ones you can get online to, you know, you could be spending a hundred thousand dollars upwards, um, on a, on a decent, um, coding platform. Um, these have got a lot more kind of expertise built into them, um, huge databases of common vulnerabilities and stuff like that. Um, so you can absolutely have a, a tool that's going to scan things for you. Um, for Python, I mean, there's, there's bandit, which, which came from the OpenStack Foundation actually, and then moved into the Python Code Quality Authority. Um, so it's kind of part of the sort of Python free libraries you can get online. Bandit is a is a free tool. Um, my PyCharm plugin is a free tool. Um, it only has a small number of tests at the moment. It's only got about thirteen uh, checks, but I'm adding um, new ones all the time. Whereas if you buy a, a like a commercial static code analysis tool, they have thousands and thousands of tests in them um 
but it will also raise a lot of uh, false positives. So you you pretty much need somebody who's going to babysit the system um, okay. to, to manage that stuff. So is Bandit a, a static analysis tool? Yeah, it's a static analysis tool. Okay. Um, it has about, I think it's probably got about 60 or 70 tests in it. Um, so yeah, it's it definitely doesn't cover everything or anywhere close to um but it's a it's a good minimum viable product i'd say okay and now are are there uh, uh things that you can point at your live site and try to attack it yeah so so the, the i guess the the testing got split into two parts one is the application testing which you can do offline by either statically looking at the code so looking at it as a text file or dynamic code analysis where you look at it as like a running application and you try and um, you try and manipulate it that way. Um, there's also the, like the environment. So where have you deployed the application to or where is it running and is that environment secure? So in some cases, if it was a web application and it's running on a web server, is that web server secure? So I don't know, is SSH locked down? Um, does it have an admin page? If so, What's the admin password? Is it password one, two, three? <laughs> um, like just really simple stuff like that. Um, I mean, you mentioned WordPress um, before the before the chat. Um, if you've ever looked at um, web server logs, so you can see like all the URLs and stuff people are trying to get to on your web application, like wp-admin or WordPress admin, um, you'll, even if you don't have WordPress on your web server, random IPs from all over the internet will be constantly trying to hit WordPress admin 24 hours a day um, because WordPress is such an, well, I don't want to be careful what I say here. WordPress historically has been such an easy thing to hack into <laughs> um, that bots will just sit there looking for WordPress servers and just hacking into them and then deploying code on them. Um, so you catch that in environment testing. Yeah, I got and and I didn't think that as a just a lowly blog that I'd have a problem with that, but um, but I did have um, I did get notified once that I had uh, some something like that had happened, and all of my links were redirecting to a porn site somewhere. Um, yeah, that was not what I intended. Um, so yes, uh, I I so I'm not even using my WordPress site right now, but I'm I'm I want to migrate it to something like Pelican which I know I have to pay attention to JavaScript security still, um, but at least it's got less vulnerabilities on the back end. Uh, and I'd, uh, I'd like it to, I guess, um, so it's still up, So, but I just go on like once a month and make sure everything's updated. And it's annoying to have to do that. So anyway. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's both free and paid tools you can use to scan environments. Um, and the free ones are, are basically the same tools that the hackers use. Um, so there's quite a few of those out there. Um, things like Nessus, for example, will, will um, like scan an IP address um, and see if it has a web server. If it has a web server, then it will check like all the known applications and stuff like that. Um, and there's commercial products you can you can buy as well, which will do. Um, you know, just as thorough, if not a more thorough job. Um, one example would be Qualys, um, which I've used a, a few times, which is very extensive. Um, and you can basically say, like, this is our this is our staging environment or this is our production environment, and it will just sit there all day trying to hack it. 
Um, so Qualys is a is as an example is like a good a good way of looking at environment testing um, because you know otherwise you'd have to go and manually do it every month, which uh, would be pretty would be pretty cumbersome, and also you wouldn't know what you were looking for necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, the when you there's the application stuff, but like you said, if you once you deploy it somewhere, you're pl- deploying it to an environment, and yeah. Hmm. Let's say I've got static analysis running, like I'll stick Bandit and a couple of these other things in my continuous integration to make a look to look at all my stuff to make sure it's always secure. I'll mm-hmm. put your plugin in place and and recommend that everybody that's writing code for my app uses this plugin so they have hints so that you know we can catch things while we're writing instead of after the fact. And then uh and then what put in place like uh before we do major changes uh try to oh we have to look at the environment too make sure our environment's secure. Um mm-hmm. I'm guessing the the some of the real stuff is the secrets that we really want to like are liable for if we if we release um mm. like things like you know credit cards and people's addresses and things like that um making sure that those are encrypted all the way down to the database um so that we're not actually dealing with clear text secrets at all so secret management is a thing is that part of security testing as well yeah so if you're if you're storing or handling credit card data um luckily there is actually a a standard that you need to meet um the pci dss standard uh which has basically got a list of security requirements in it so things like um like environment testing for example and having a firewall and having a password policy is the all requirements before the payment card industry will even let you uh, take and store credit cards. Um, so thankfully, because there is that standard, then, you know, um, credit card information doesn't get stolen from the internet. But <laughs> um, in reality, you know, that is, that is scratching the surface. Um, so credit cards, absolutely. If you, if you, if you need to handle credit cards, that don't try and do that yourself. <laughs> um, meeting PCI like DSS is an expensive task. Um, if you can offload that to a third party, then do. So even in like in the in the post GDPR world, even if mm. I just have somebody's name and email address, I have to care about keeping that a secret, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is that so? Do you recommend using like secret management and encryption with things like that as well? Yeah, that's one of the things I've been looking at in the plugin is um, is the basically the different hashing algorithms um, which are in Python in the standard library um, as probably about a third of them, if not half of them that come bundled with Python are um, cryptographically weak, let's say like you could you could crack them with enough compute power uh, and it doesn't have to be a lot these days. Um, so even with the hashing algorithms that come with a standard library, you have to be quite careful. Um, so one of the checks I've got in the, in the plugin will actually say, okay, you're using this particular algorithm. Don't use that for storing anything that you wouldn't want reverse hashed basically. Um, is, yeah, it's one thing. And if you're, yeah, if you're doing secret management, then don't, don't try and write that yourself. There's, there's libraries to do this off the shelf. So. Yeah, and also 
there's ways to push it down to the database as fast as possible so you don't actually deal with it most of the time anyway. Mm. One of the things that some applications do is I don't actually have to sign up for account with them. I get to use my GitHub account or my Google Mm. account or something to sign in somewhere. Does that make it more secure or increase the security problem? Yeah, that's a good question. I um I did actually make a list of notes the other day on um like ways that I would look to hack into a Django application. Um if I was if I was evil. Um and one of them was to do with authentication modules basically. So in Django you can it's got a pluggable authentication system. And if you wanted to bring in like an OAuth or an OpenID plugin, so if you wanted to let people log in using Facebook or Google or or GitHub or something, um, then there's modules you can download and install into Django, um, or there's ones that you can run in, in your Python application to to enable that. Um, does that make the application more secure? Um, it means you don't have to handle the inputs of the password and also in a lot of cases users would get two-factor authentication so if you've got 2fa on github for example then that means your users get two-factor authentication as part of that which is great um but these modules the configuration is a bit complicated and people can make mistakes in the config i think that's probably the biggest issue is that people pull in these modules that do author open id and they don't really understand the configuration and they make a mistake and they've left a security hole in the in the application okay Hmm. now remind me what two-factor authentication is um so the two-factor means there's basically another thing that you need to have other than the password so it could be anything it could be um like a phone, for example. So if you've got a app on your phone that generates keys, um, or it could be one of those little um, key fobs, or okay. it could be a text message or something. So two-factor authentication, which you should have enabled on GitHub if you don't already, <laughs> um, means that if you want to log into GitHub, you need to have like an app installed on your phone. You have to type in the extra code as well as the password. Okay. But then they, they somehow often store that information so i don't have to do it every time is that via cookies or do you know how that's done it's via cookies um so you have a session cookie which has got an expiry time on it okay so you don't have to log in log in every time so if i'm really being a paranoid person and running like all the security stuff on firefox i just have to do two-factor authentication on everything all the time yeah, that's why I know those cookies because I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, cool. Uh, well, okay. So I think I'm actually ha- breaking this up into things like I need to care about the environment. I need to care about my application. I need. I definitely need to care about my database and that security because some something. I mean, we didn't talk about that, but I'm guessing somebody could spoof your application and pretend to be the app talking to the database. So you want to make sure that that doesn't work. Um, the um, um, yeah, there's a lot there, but it's it's not terribly unman. At least it's it's a, it's still kind of daunting, but there's a, some places to get started, so that's good. Yeah, and one um, additional action I would say, people is especially Python developers, if you want to 
kind of practice your like security techniques a bit more. So once you've done the done, do some training online, um, there's plenty of places where you can either um, pay to pay to do the training. Like Plural Site, for example, has got lots of um, training modules on application security. There's some free stuff out there as well um, of mixed mixed quality. I mean, you you do get what you pay for. Um, but once you've done that, then check out uh, hackthebox.eu. Um, which is a basically a website where you've got a series of challenges. It's really fun. Um, and you have to basically like reverse engineer applications, crack cryptography algorithms, um, hack servers, break applications. So if you're learning this, if you're learning this stuff, the problem is that there's not many places where you can practice um, to see if what you're learning is correct. So hack the box is a really cool um without obviously breaking the law so yeah i was gonna say legal places to to do that (laughs) (laughs) so hack the box is a cool legal place um the the thing i really love about it is that um there is no registration page because you have to hack the website to register um (laughs) (laughs) okay so so if you if you're listening to this and you've gone onto the website uh it's basically a uh, a small it's a barrier to stop um people who who don't have it's actually quite tricky to hack into it to register um if you get stuck just ping me and i'll, I'll give you some clues um but, but you, yeah you've got in yeah no it was it was um yeah if you if you spend time in the javascript uh console basically you can kind of look at the login page and figure out what it's doing and then generate yourself an invite code so um okay cool. yeah there's ways there's ways in but there's some fun stuff in there and it's pretty much all python as well so um the challenges in there that i've really enjoyed is they're reversing in crypto stuff um and the crypto ones uh they're pretty much all in python so you're basically writing python scripts to try and crack um crypto okay the um now this is it i have to admit and I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I actually thought people that said that they were into pen testing actually were testing ballpoint pens or something for, <laughs> for a small amount of time. Um, but pen testing is short for penetration testing, right? For right? Yeah. Um, there are there, there are uh, so penetration testing is definitely something that you should look at if you've got the uh, if you've got the budget um they are quite expensive uh providers also vary greatly in um in quality and you you get what you pay for again um some pen testing companies will run the same tools you can download for free on the internet (laughs) um so there's some of the stuff that i mentioned basically they'll just run that and charge you fifty thousand dollars for it um and put it all in a nice pdf report at the end um if you find a good firm um then you know you can actually have on-site pen testing and stuff like that so um it, for people that i've worked with in the past uh, pen testers they've actually taught me a lot um for example they showed me this really cool uh, usb key um that you can get um but you actually can make your own it's re- it's really quite simple and um windows puts the the password check mechanism into ram um and basically, using this USB key, you can plug it into pretty much 
any machine that has a USB port open. Uh, Firewire's got the same uh, vulnerability as well. Um, and you can log in, just type in the username and just the password can be whatever <laughs> password one, two, three. It doesn't have to have to actually match the password of the user and it just lets you in. Um, <laughs> okay. like, uh, I was working with a pen tester and they were, we were doing on-site testing. Um, and I was like, oh, what's on the USB stick? And they told me the, the, the software, um, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share the name of it, but it's easily Googleable. Um, and I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Like if you think your machine is locked down cause you have a secure password, like you just plug in this USB stick and it just bypasses the password check. <laughs> that's why I put tape over my USB ports. <laughs> Some sticky tape. Yeah. That'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I have it over my camera. Uh, no, I bring it up, but just because I was taking a look at the hackthebox.eu um, site, and it, um, I mean, essentially, this is this is for you to practice uh, pen testing on those boxes, right? So, yeah, pen, it's something that pen testers use as a as a training ground, basically. Okay, yeah, interesting, cool. Well, thanks so much for teaching me all about this. Um, before we let you go, though, um, I want to ask you about this book that you're working on. Hmm. So you're right. <laughs> you're writing um, a book on C Python, correct? Yeah. So I'm writing a book on C Python internals. So it's basically covering the sort of technical aspects of C Python, like how it's built, um, how the software is laid out, how bytecodes work, how the compiler works. Um, how the evaluation loop works, how memory management works, the testing libraries. Um, it's pretty much the, I guess, if you were to join a team and there was like an internal dev guide for new developers, okay, here's all the stuff you need to read um, in order to join as a, as a developer. It's basically like the missing the missing manual for that. There is a dev guide on the, on the Python um, site, but this is goes into like a whole new level of, have level of detail um it's fairly advanced um but for co complicated stuff for example um like the compiler and the bytecode evaluation loop i've really tried to break it down into small pieces and use lots of diagrams and illustrations to explain it simply so it's not an academic i've really tried not to make it like an academic book um to to try and you know explain things and the goal is as well that people can read this book and then feel like they've got good enough understanding to start to contribute to CPython or they've basically improved their knowledge of the the fundamentals of the of the uh, of the language and also the runtime and um, which would be useful for big big applications or um, more complex apps. You're even getting into details like how to configure your editor and stuff like that. Yeah, so I've 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 kind of approached this um, as a perspective that m a lot of people will be using Windows and the developer tool chain for CPython is very targeted to Linux, Linux users in particular. Um, I think a lot of the core dev team use Linux or Mac, um, but a lot of people obviously use Windows. The the, the CPython Windows team use Windows, um, but if you're if you're using Windows and you just want to work on the code, um, 
at the moment there's some there's a lot of things you can't you can't do so what i've been doing is basically looking at um ides like uh visual studio code pycharm uh c lion which is made by JetBrains as well it's like um the c c plus plus version of pycharm um I'm really excited then, about that because I've actually wanted to try that on some C++ code, but I haven't yet. Yeah, so C line's actually really cool. I I really um I really got on well with it. It's got the same visual debugger as PyCharm. Okay. Um, but for C and C++, so you can stick breakpoints in. Um, and I kind of explain how to do this in the book because it's it's it doesn't use um c python doesn't use cmake which is like the newer version of the make tools um so yeah there's some workarounds to basically get that um get that working but yeah you can do break um debugging visual debugging in in c line as well so i gotta admit i'm probably not going to read the whole thing but i'm totally gonna, <laughs> that's cool i'm totally going to buy the book and i'm going to use it as actually the way i use most uh tech books is I'll read a couple of chapters and then jump in and try to get started and then use the book to help me like as a tutor if where I get stuck. And so I'm, I'm, I'm totally excited to jump on board, but I, I read super slow. So I don't know how long your book is so far. Uh, it, when it's finished, it'll be about 400 pages. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to it and I'm, I'm glad you're working on it. I think it's something that definitely was needed. Um, and even if I didn't contribute it, Python's such a widely used thing that I think it's a good example of a, a large, long-living project that, um, that people can use to just practice their, practice their ability to navigate large code bases and stuff. So, I mean, I've, I've heard people before say, there's no excuse for not having experience with a large code base because like, the Linux kernel is available for anybody to, to play with. But, oh my gosh, I don't really want to play with the Linux kernel. I might want to play with, you've done it before. I think it was you. Didn't you do some, like add some uh, operator to Python that you knew was going to get rejected or was that somebody else? <laughs> yeah, that was me. Yeah. <laughs> I added a, uh, uh, in place incrementer operator. Um, so if you, if you're use C and C plus plus, you would say if I is a number, then you say I plus plus. Um, and it just means that number plus one. So you can't, you, you famously can't do that in Python because um, uh, Guido didn't doesn't like it. Um, and there's actually a the the reason why is actually in the Zen of Python. Uh, if you look really closely, it's like a hidden it's a hint um, when it says there should be one and preferably one. Uh, the first time it has the minus minus at the end, and the second time it has the minus minus before. Um, and it's actually a hint because the uh, the post increment or decrement operator in C can be before or after the variable name. Um, and it also has different behaviors and it confuses people. And when they were designing the language, they didn't like that so much so that they, first of all, did make sure that you couldn't do that in Python. Like it's not even an operator. And then secondly, they put it into the Zen of Python as a joke. So if you go and read the Zen of Python again, it's um, you'll notice that those two hyphens are actually a reference to that. I'll definitely do that. In the book, what I've been doing is um, like for each chapter, basically building on an example. So the example is adding an almost equals operator. So in, in Python, you can do equals equals or not equals um, or less than equals or greater than equals, for example. I was curious about that. 
Because I saw you tweeting about it, and I'm like, is there an almost equal operator in Python? <laughs> no, there isn't. So in the book, um, like each chapter as it builds into the different levels, uh, we, ca- we carry through the same example. So it's a, a tilde, which is like the squiggly line. Um, squiggly line equals. So we basically add it as grammar and compile it into CPython. Um, and then as we go through the different object types and stuff, then we add support for it. So... I've been doing for like floating point integers. So almost equals means like 1.00001 is pretty much the same as 1.0. Like, Well, the PyTest has an approximate. Yeah. I'm assuming you're kind of doing something like that. Yeah, and I've been adding support in strings as well. So it doesn't ignores case, for example. <laughs> well, that's cool. <laughs> I'm like, okay, does it matter if they got a capital letter or not? And then just for fun, I've been looking at emojis as well. So saying like a, a smiley face and a grinning face are approximately equal. And then a, a koala bear is not approximately equal to a bear because it's not a bear. For strings, <laughs> is uh, trailing spaces, or are you ignoring those? Uh, uh, actually, I'm keeping those into account. Maybe we could add that in. That's a good idea. Um, anyway, I like it. Now, now, gosh, you've convinced me I'm going to have to read the whole thing. So I'm just not going to sleep for like four months. <laughs> Thanks. I've got to finish it first. So the goal is to have it ready and published and physical books available for PyCon US this year. Okay. Well, I have a goal of publishing this episode before then as well. No. I get <laughs> it. should be long before then. Hey, um, we're running long mostly because you and I are friends and I could talk to you for hours. but um, we should probably wrap it up. So thanks a ton for coming on the show and talking to us about security, keeping us updated on your book, and good luck with finishing that. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been fun. Thank you to Anthony for all of that great security info. Thank you to Patreon supporters for continuing to support the show. Join them by going to testandcode.com support. Thank you to Oxylabs for sponsoring this episode. Find out about all they do, including next-gen residential proxies at oxylabs.io slash testandcode. That link is also in the show notes at testandcode.com slash 101. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. <laughs>